Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 294. Today's big Bible question, how should Christians respond to bouts of hopelessness and depression? And we're also going to talk about five myths about depression. So a blessed and peaceful Friday to you, friends. Today, we launch into a new book, the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is one of the best-known Bible figures to those who grew up in church because of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's a great story, but there's much more to the book of Daniel than just that story. I mean, there's some great end-time stuff and all kind of things. And one kind of big deal is that Daniel is one of the very, very few major characters in the Bible that we don't see sinning in any major sort of way. And of course, Daniel was not perfect, but... He was humble, wise, and remarkably righteous. And today, as we read, we're going to see that Daniel and his friends chose to eat vegetables and not drink wine rather than defile themselves with the food from the Babylonian king. Now, the Bible doesn't exactly spell out to us why the Babylonian king's food was defiled. Perhaps it contained portions that were not allowed for the Jewish people to eat, like pork and things like that. Or perhaps it was offered to idols prior to being given to the servants to eat. Regardless, Daniel and his friends didn't eat it, and their choice led to them being remarkably healthy. I can remember one time around 20 years ago, I was on staff at a church that did a 21-day Daniel fast of all fruits and vegetables, the pastor called the fast, and like three days in, I was struggling mightily as I hadn't drank any coffee And I just felt like a slug, like there was no energy, no desire to wake up or anything like that. But long about day three or day four, I had an epiphany and realized that coffee was a fruit and or vegetable, and I began to drink it again. Now, I didn't tell anybody that, uh, but, you know, we were not strictly drinking water, so I hope that wasn't cutting corners too badly, but it did help me make it through the Daniel fast. So if you happen to find yourself on a Daniel fast right now and nobody's forbidden it, maybe that coffee tip will help you out, and maybe not. In addition to Daniel chapter 1, our other Bible passages for the day include 1 Kings 19, Psalm 105, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Today we're going to see an astounding thing that many of you will be able to relate to, Elijah, the mighty man of God and the mighty man of prayer, the same Elijah who had in 1 Kings 17 had been used by God to literally raise the dead, the same Elijah who in 1 Kings 17 prayed that it wouldn't rain and God shut the heavens for you know, not a few days, but three and a half years. The same Elijah that had gloriously defeated the prophets of Baal in a fiery showdown in 1 Kings 18, and the same Elijah who had prayed down rain after that three and a half year drought, that Elijah coming off some of the biggest and most dramatic spiritual victories recorded in the Bible, all of the sudden a woman threatens him and he finds himself depressed and suicidal and running away into the woods. And no, you didn't hear that wrong. So let's read our First Kings 19 chapter, find out where Elijah is, and consider how even mighty men and women of God can be depressed and suicidal and what we can do if we find ourselves in that place. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life 
like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness and he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and the angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him, and he said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then God said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment... The Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hadziel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave seven thousand in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was there with the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, Please, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go on back, he replied, for what have I done to you? So he turned back from following him, took the team of oxen, slaughtered them with the oxen's wooden yoke and pitlau. He cooked the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. So let me let me say this as sort of a disclaimer before we get too deep into this discussion. I am today more focused on spiritual depression than uh, clinical depression or, or physical depression. I'm not a doctor. I'm a pastor and teacher. Some Christians believe that all depression is spiritual and emotional and none is clinical or physical. I don't believe that to be the case, and the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, some Christians believe that taking medicine for depression is unspiritual and biblical, and the Bible doesn't teach that or forbid that. 
while I believe, honestly speaking, that the United States is a, quite a bit over-medicated in this realm, that does not mean that all medication is ne- never necessary for mental afflictions like depression. There is no shame or sin in taking medicine to treat such conditions, but do allow me to urge you to make such decisions with wisdom and good counsel. So, our hero Elijah finds himself hopelessly in a depressed state at the threat of Jezebel. So, where has the mighty man of faith in the last two chapters gone? This is a human reality, friends. Some days, you and I, we're capable of amazing faith and confidence in the Lord, and maybe the next day or the next hour or whatever, we might say the same thing Elijah did, or it's something like it. God, just go ahead and take my life now. And we see it. We see this incredible swing in verses 3 and 4. Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. He went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. You know, the mighty man of God, Elijah, praying that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors. So yes, the mighty prophet of God, Elijah, prayed that God would kill him. In retrospect, I think we can look back at his situation and see that he was honestly being maybe just a shade over dramatic. Now, the threat of death was real because Jezebel had legit already killed like hundreds of prophets, but ultimately we see looking back in the past that God protected Elijah. Elijah's fears and Elijah's prayers here for God to kill him we need to see, don't tarnish his life and legacy, and God did not reject him. So maybe you're in a fearful place right now. Maybe you're not quite as fearful as Elijah, or maybe you're more fearful than Elijah. Maybe you're fearful about COVID, or your job, or your family, or some other medical situation not related to COVID, or some other situation at all. Maybe you're hopeless, depressed, or despairing. If so, allow me to encourage you not to beat yourself up about that. Not to think, oh my gosh, if only I was a real Christian, I wouldn't feel be feeling these feelings. Now, Elijah walked close with God, and he was feeling those things. So did Moses, so did others. So don't beat yourself up about this, because for one, beating yourself up won't accomplish anything whatsoever. And two, you're not alone. If Elijah, Moses, David, Paul, Hannah, and so many other mighty people of God in the Bible can grapple with bouts of hopelessness, despair, and depression— Don't be surprised if you do the same thing. You're probably not better than them. I know I'm not better than them. And so it shouldn't surprise me if I go through periods of downness and despair and depression. And and even if that's sort of a, a, a struggle you have almost a lifelong fight with. We have many examples of that in church history, including my hero, Charles Spurgeon, who fought mightily for so many years with the specter of depression. Here are five myths about depression to help us better understand it from a biblical view. Now, this is not the deepest we can go on this issue, but I think this is hopefully helpful and it points us in the right direction. Myth number one about depression, 
Christians don't get depressed. I think we've quoted this one other time on the show, but uh, medical doctor and Christian author John Lockley says, being depressed is bad enough in itself, but being a depressed Christian can be worse. And being a depressed Christian in a church full of people who don't understand depression is like a little taste of hell. That's tough. I think the testimony of the Bible, though we don't have a diagnosis of clinical depression in there, of course, shows that saints of God can be depressed. Number two myth about depression, depression is a sin. Now, I do believe that there are times when our anxiety, despair, or hopelessness does become a lack of faith, and it does tread into the sin place, but not always. And I don't know that Elijah was sinning here Uh, because he certainly isn't rebuked for it. So I think it's possible to wrestle quite hard with depression and hopelessness and not be sinning. For instance, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.8 says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of all of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves so that we wouldn't trust ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Okay, so Paul is saying, hey, we thought we were going to die. I think he's actually saying something more than that. He said, we despaired of life. He was absolutely and utterly hopeless in this situation, probably in some other ones too. And we have that recorded in the Bible. How about Jesus, Mark 13, 34, when he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus is saying, I'm so sad, I'm at the point of dying. I'm not sure he's expressing that he desires to die. I think he's just saying, I'm so sad, it's like I'm dying. And Jesus didn't exaggerate, and he didn't lie. So yeah, if Jesus and Paul and other mighty giants of God can go to that place then I don't think, I I think this means that there are times of depression and hopelessness that are not at all sinful. So myth number three, depression has an easy biblical cure. It doesn't. There's not an easy biblical cure for depression any more than uh, sickness has an easy biblical cure or cancer has an easy biblical cure. However, I do believe that God heals. I believe he heals miraculously and supernaturally, body, mind, and soul. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? And I think we can include this amongst sick sickness. He should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. So I believe God heals, but I also believe the Bible doesn't give us an easy cure for things like cancer and depression and hopelessness and things like that. Myth number four about depression. Depression is incurable apart from medicine. That's We'll call that myth 4a. Or myth 4b, Christians should never take medicine for depression. So we already talked about this a little bit. I'm not opposed to medicine, but I believe some forms of depression and some people who are depressed can and will be cured apart from medicine. At the same time, other depressions are strongly related to something like genetics or hormones or body chemistry, and they respond really, really well to medicine. I can't tell you which depression you might be struggling with right now, but I can tell you it's a myth that depression is incurable apart from medicine, and it's a myth that Christians should never take medicine for depression. May the Lord lead you on that decision, but know that the Bible is not opposed to medicine. For instance, we see things like 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says, Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So number five, 
myth about depression. Depression is 100% bad and useless. Uh, An oyster creates a pearl out of a grain of sand. That grain of sand is an irritant to an oyster. Um, In response to that discomfort on the inside of the oyster, the oyster creates a smooth protective coating that encases that sand and it provides relief for the oyster, and the end result of that whole process is a beautiful pearl. For an oyster, an irritant, a difficulty, becomes the seed for something new and something beautiful. And is it too Pollyanna of me to think that there's a sense that depression and hopelessness and things and, and great and terrible trials can be like that? First Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah. Now, that's hard to do when we're fighting something hard, but that's obviously what we're supposed to do. James 1.2, very similar. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Sometimes God allows us to go through times of a depressed state or times of hopelessness to call us to depend on him more, to mature us more, and to raise us up more. Spurgeon, I mentioned earlier, who uh, struggled with depression for much of his life in ministry, even though he was a jolly, jovial, optimistic, positive guy, he still fought depression. And I suppose that's actually another myth that, uh, on, that the only kind of people that fight depression are somber, uh, quiet, and unhappy people. No, no, the class clown, the, the comedian, the jovial person might just as well be struggling with depression. Because Spurgeon was that person. He was jovial. He was funny. He was had this incredible room-filling charisma and personality, and yet he fought depression for years. And he says this, Our depression may also tend to our fruitfulness. A heart bowed down with despair is a dreadful thing. A broken spirit who may bear it, says Proverbs 18.14. But if you have never had such an experience, you will not be worth a pin as a preacher. You cannot help others who are depressed unless you have been down in the depths yourself. You cannot lift others out of despondency and depression unless you yourself sometimes need to be lifted out of such experiences. You must be compassed or surrounded with this infirmity too in times in order to have compassion on those in a similar case. Our whole nature as feeble men but may be turned to the noblest use if it calls forth our compassion towards others. When we are less than nothing, the all-sufficiency of God will be all the more manifested. Amen. Wow, that's just a great quote. So what do we do if we find ourselves in a place of hopelessness and depression? I want to suggest three practical and spiritual things that I see here in the text of 1 Kings 19. Now, this is a very incomplete and short answer, to be honest with you, but we have covered depression many times so far this year in the Bible Reading Podcast. So if you want to go deeper, uh, come to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I'll say it again. BibleReadingPodcast.com, scroll down just a hair and search for the word depression in the handy dandy search bar and you will hopefully find, I mean, I don't know, it's probably not 10, but I think it's at least five episodes uh, or so so far that we've already covered depression and there's lots of helpful resources in the articles to those episodes. So uh, what do we do when we're confronted with hopelessness and depression? I see three things here that Elijah did, or God did with Elijah. Number one, Elijah rested. 
Now, rest is so important that God modeled for us a life of rest in the literal very beginning of everything. You, now listen to this, especially you stubborn high achievers out there. I get you. Uh, I know you, and, and hear what I'm saying here, okay? You are not designed by your creator to be able to make it in life without sleep. Rest and regular deep sleep doesn't cure everything, but it does help, and lack of sleep amplifies depression, hopelessness, joyful joylessness, stress, anger, and literally every physical ailment. I know some people out there who try to get out by on like five hours or less of sleep trying to hack the system. Might I gently prod you, and honestly, if that doesn't work, just shove you hard and say that success and fruitfulness in life is not by your might, not by your power, but by his spirit, says the Lord. Most people who try to get by on little sleep are just way too self-dependent. And that sort of attitude is, is honestly, it's terrible for you health-wise. And it also seems to just invite in depression and helplessness. If your attitude, the attitude of your life is, if it's to be, it's up to me, then allow me to, you know, shove you a little bit again and urge you to read and reread and reread and reread John 15, 1 through 8 until you are dispelled of that crummy attitude and then go and rest like Elijah because you can't make anything happen apart from Jesus. You can't. You don't have that power. If it's to be, it's up to him. And if you can change your mindset at that, if you can get into a John 15, 1 through 6 mindset, if you can begin to understand what Jesus was saying to Mary of Bethany uh, and how he commended her for sitting at his feet instead of you know, doing chores all the time, then you can begin to step into a deeper kingdom perspective that is more focused on God and Jesus and rest and less focused on the power of your hands to accomplish everything. And it will get you to a place of more God-sufficiency than self-sufficiency. And that's just a lot better of a place to be in. Okay, number two to, thing to do when confronted with hopelessness and depression. Elijah took in healthy sustenance or food. Now, I could over-spiritualize this part, but there's really no need to. God gave Elijah good and nutritious food to eat. Uh, possibly supernaturally empowered food in this case. And Elijah was invigorated. It. You know, you might not have the same access to that exact kind of food, but eating healthily rather than binging or starving yourselves or eating like real unhealthy comfort food, that'll tend to bring you encouragement. Um, eating healthy, I think, is good for you. We're going to see that here in a minute with Daniel. Number three, most importantly, most importantly, Elijah sought the Lord and heard the word of God and he got into the presence of God. Elijah came to know God in a far, far deeper way during his bout with depression and these suicidal thoughts. He came to realize that God is not always in the loudest of things, but sometimes is in a gentle whisper. Elijah learning about God and interacting with God himself was energizing and hope bringing and it enabled him to continue going to appoint a successor and to finish his personal race well. How? Well, because his eyes were on God and his ears were attuned to God's word and not so much trusting in himself to make everything happen. So is that a three-step process to be cured of every depression, mental illness, and bout of hopelessness? Of course it isn't. 
But I think it is an excellent three-step process to not give in to the depths of despair as you are being sifted like wheat and struggling with any sort of a negative emotion, spiritual attack, bout of depression, etc. I think it could help to follow the example of Elijah. Rest adequately. Don't, you know, sleep all the time, of course. Eat healthily and seek God in his presence and his word. Amen. We continue with Psalm chapter 105, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell about all his wondrous works, boast in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face always, remember the wondrous works he has done, his wonders and the judgments he has pronounced, you offspring of Abraham, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen one, he is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he ordained for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, swore to Isaac, and confirmed to Jacob as a decree and to Israel as a permanent covenant. I will give the land of Canaan to you as your inherited portion. When they were few in number, very few indeed, and resident aliens in Canaan, wandering from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another, He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their behalf. Do not touch my anointed ones or harm my prophets. He called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put in an iron collar until the time his prediction came true. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent for him and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all his possessions, binding his officials at will and instructing his elders. Then Israel went to Egypt. Jacob lived as an alien in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people more fruitful. He made them more numerous than their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people and to deal deceptively with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, They performed his miraculous signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and it became dark, for did they not defy his commands? He turned their water into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land was overrun with frogs. Even in their royal chambers he spoke and insects came, gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and lightning through their land. He struck their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number. They devoured all the vegetation in their land and consumed the produce of their land. He struck all the firstborn in their land, all their first progeny. Then he brought Israel out with silver and gold, and no one among his tribes stumbled. Egypt was glad when they left, for the dread of Israel had fallen on them. He spread a cloud as a covering and gave a fire to light up the night. They asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with bread from heaven. He opened a rock and water gushed out. It flowed like a stream in the desert, for he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. He brought his people out with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. He gave them the lands of the nations, and they inherited what other peoples had worked for. All this happened so that they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Hallelujah. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah... King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. 
Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical effect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food, from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with a king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with him about this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is why we constantly thank God 
Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone." by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, But Satan hindered us, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Amen, dear friends. I hope today that the Word of God was encouraging to you and that it brought peace to your life, that um, it lifted you up, and that His hand will bless you and His face will shine on you and that he will lead you to good places and cause you to glorify him and bear much fruit, showing yourself to be his disciples. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Good day and Godspeed.